How good it is to be with you on this first Sunday in Advent. I am blessed to be lead pastor here. My name is Andy, and it's a gift and a joy to stand before you. I hope that your Thanksgivings went well, that your family is healthy. We pray for those families where that is not the case for sure. I do know that the family that lit the Advent candle was down too this morning uh, due to illness, and we pray for Catherine and family, so we hold them tenderly. Uh, But we come into a new series. And when you go home today and you post on social media, we celebrated Advent 1 in my Methodist church this morning. All your Midwest friends and family might say, now wait just a minute, I think you're a week early there, and that's because you are. This is a year where Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday. And we felt it was important to give our full energy and attention to the four weeks of Advent that prepare us with the themes of hope, peace, love, and joy that make us ready for that Christmas story in a powerful and profound way. We will still have worship on Christmas Eve. It'll be at 10 a.m. here in this place, a combined service of worship uh, that celebrates as one community together. Uh, And uh, we're calling that Advent four and a half uh, as we prepare for Christmas Eve that night. But we wanted to give our our full attention to the themes of Advent, and so we're starting but one week early. Oftentimes, Advent 1 falls on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Uh, And so for the next four weeks, the next uh, month or so, uh, we prepare our hearts and lives for the incarnation and the coming of the Christ child. This is a time of anticipation, of preparation, and to make us ready for the coming of Jesus uh, we sit here in a week of Thanksgiving where we, we uh, have gathered together. Maybe you traveled or some are still traveling. Uh, I'll keep my eyes on the traffic from Vegas back to Southern California for people I may know who are making that drive back. Uh, we did that earlier in the week. Uh, but uh, in a, the spirit of Thanksgiving, I want to thank you as a church, um, as the husband of a pie baker, uh, your generous support. Uh, the youth group put together 73 pies and raised a little over $1,200 for their missions Uh, as a part of your generosity and we're grateful for that Uh, in a time where we're praying for peace that uh, truces and ceasefires might uh, come to be lasting peace where the number of drone strikes and other wars would go down not up and increase we greet God with a word of prayer so let's pray together friend Holy One, we come before you in this time asking for your presence to settle us in, that uh, for the next bit we might be your people truly gathered in this place. We ask for your blessings upon all who are here, all who watch us online, and all who may use this as a resource in their week to come. Help us to be your people. We're rooted in bringing about your kingdom in the world. Help us to be a people of love, people of hope, and today a people of justice. We long to do what is right and what is good. May your spirit move among us up and down the aisle and across the rows and open our eyes and our hearts that we might open our lives to you. O God, who is our strength and the source of all salvation, this we pray. Amen. So we start with a question, church. What do you want for Christmas? It's a practical one. Oftentimes we make lists about the kind of things we'd like as gifts. There was a day, he'll date me here, where I got to take a marker and the Toys R Us catalog, and circle the things, uh, much to my delight and my parents' dismay that I wanted for Christmas. Uh, that Things have changed, now you can do your Amazon wish list and share that on Facebook with all your friends. But there was a time where making a list of things you wanted was important. Or maybe you're the type that wrote a letter to Santa Claus and tried to defend your choices for that year, and why you were in fact trying to be a good person and therefore deserve some level of gift giving from Santa as a part of that time. We are 
hardwired this time of year to consider that question, what do we want for Christmas? Although there are many of us who kind of come to that point where uh, we look at the world around us and we look at things that are going on and our answer is kind of, I'm not sure, I don't know, or I'm pretty sure I have all of the stuff that I need other than maybe the next new thing, the next new trinkets and generations of electronics or passions I already have and carry. So sometimes that longing of desire for something at Christmas shifts. We start with the question, what do you want for Christmas? I mentioned that we were starting but a week early so that we could have a full month to prepare ourselves for the coming of the Christ child. And so my second question is this, do you want life to be the same 29 days from now, when we gather around this Christmas nativity story and receive the Christ child, when the language of our songs switch from O come, O come, Emmanuel, to joy to the world, do you want life to be the same that it is right now? I know that I don't. I confess that to you. I'd love, as we prayed, for things like truces and ceasefires to be lasting peace. I'd love for there to be a reduction in domestic violence and the brokenness of homes and the struggle of hearts. I'd love for a spirit of anxiety in myself and in our world to be diminished that we might settle in and know the peace of God that's available in the Christmas season. I look at the Christmas story on day one of Advent and I say, do I want life to be the same 29 days from now? My answer is no. I hope to grow. I hope to change and I hope to be a part of change. And so on this first Sunday in Advent, we lean into an idea of an upside-down Christmas. Yes, there are themes for us of what happens when life doesn't look like what we want it to be in the Christmas season. New diagnoses, changes, new grief, aging parents, whatever the case might be, whatever your struggle is, there are times where Christmas does not bring joy to your world. But when we look at this question, why do we celebrate an upside-down Christmas here, the answer is a couplefold. The first is that it ties into our, our all-church study, which I'm quite excited about. Scott Crostick is a pastor at the Church of the Resurrection. He's a part of their team. I've got my book, 1215 Today. I'm going to be down leading a men's study uh, at uh, Corner Bakery, just on the corner there, and I'd be happy to have other men from the church. Just drop in and join us as we talk about chapter one uh, and visit around that. Scott makes the argument that Advent is inherently a, a season of surprises. It's never quite what we expect and so we have to keep our eyes open to see. The second answer to why an upside-down Christmas is it gives us new eyes and ears to see and to hear, to see our scriptures in a new way, to see our life in a new way, to see our story in a new way. You might have noticed as you came in, we hope you did, otherwise, you know, I, you were a little windblown when you came in. The tree in our narthex, in our lobby as you came in, is upside down, built and designed that way. Next week you'll come in and we'll have caring and sharing tags on that tree that allow you uh, to gift uh, to those in the community who need resources that you may very well have. That comes from a rich tradition. It's not a new thing, even though Ariana Grande shared a picture on Instagram of her tree last year and it was upside down. It goes back to the 6th century by legend and story. A Catholic missionary by the name of Boniface went to Ireland. Like all good stories, it starts with junk, drunk Irish pagans <laughs> praying around a fir tree. And Boniface went to them, he cut down the tree and he held it upside down. And he said, I want you to look at this a new way. See not just the tree in the ground, but the triangle that the tree makes. 
not unlike the Trinity that the Christian church celebrates. A God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all loving and intertwined, three in one. There are three points to what you see, but there is but one God. And so there have been traditions in Christendom since then of folks hanging their trees upside down or hanging tree ornaments upside down as a symbol of the Trinity and God's love within God's self and God's love for the whole world. It's a new way of seeing and a new way of hearing. For us, it might be an opportunity to realize that uh, in terms of practical use, the folks who were hanging their trees upside down in most recent history, beyond the aesthetic of it, were the poor in Poland. They would hang their wreaths and Christmas decorations and indeed their trees from their rafters down over their room. I say room because these are the kind of people who didn't have rooms but had a single space hanging the tree from the ceiling allowed them to bring the celebration of christmas into their homes to look at a symbol of hope and god's love for them even in the midst of their poverty but it still allowed them the space that they needed maybe we'll look and see new ways to make space it's also a new invitation you might find that in the midst of a series where we're looking at things from an unexpected way and an upside down way that you might know a friend. You might have a neighbor or a member in your household, a member of your family, who needs to take the scriptures that are familiar and see them in a new way for themselves to maybe recapture some of the spark and energy of Christmas. Why an upside down Christmas? Well, because that's what the Christmas story truly is. This nativity scene captivates our energy and our attention. When we put Camille's 90-plus nativities away in January, they are not replaced with little trinket symbols of Elijah uh, or of Father Abraham. We don't swap out for our other stories. There is something about this story that captivates the energy of us but the simple truth is is this story of god's love made manifest in the person of christ comes in unexpected ways the cast of characters is unruly and unexpected the setting is not what we would have picked or designed but the motivation is pure for god so loved the world that he gives the son as a remedy and a hope for a brokenness in our patterns lives and relationships if everything was working fine, God would not need to be incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes because of a disorientation. The world was itself upside down, and Jesus needed to come and make it right side up. Jesus turns things around. He turns around our identity. He gives us new hearts and new lives and invites us into a challenging and at times upside down course to our life. And you might say, well, I, I've been, I'm, a, I'm a cradle-to-grave Christian. I've always been in Sunday school, and I've always been in church. There are people in pews around you. There are people in the pastoral ministry in front of you for whom that has not always been the case, that there have been hurdles, there have been struggles, there have been bumps, wherein the invitation to be faithful to the person that God would have us to be in Jesus Christ involves turning our life upside down, doing something different, doing something new, not that which we desired or expected that which God has truly called us to. Jesus comes to turn things around in us and provide us a new opportunity, not just a new identity, but a new role in relationship with the world and the community. We are blessed to be a blessing that we might be transformative in this place for our world. God looks at the church and says, this is the body of Christ. 
not just the followers of Jesus who have taken up his name as Christians, but indeed the very body of Christ. There will be opportunities for us to be the hands, opportunities for us to be the feet, opportunities for us to be the mouth in a world that needs to feel God's touch, see God's movement, and hear God's voice even today. For God so loved the world, he gave Valencia United Methodist Church to the world that they might be a place where they come to know love, hope, and possibility. We're called into new opportunities. And that same Jesus invites us to consider an upside-down appreciation of what the kingdom of God will look like. If you push the fast-forward button and a tape runs ahead to Easter, you will know that in the trial before Pilate, he's asked, are you a king or are you not? Jesus says, I'm a king, but not one of this world. If I was, I'd have an army at your door trying to break me out. My kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom that Jesus proclaimed, the kingdom that Jesus taught into, fed into, healed into, was one of justice and equity. And it was not the reign that anybody else expected. Why an upside-down Christmas? Because that's what Jesus came to do. And so on this first Sunday in Advent, I want to talk about the prophets and to talk about the prophets, I want to talk about one of my favorite pieces of music, and that's Handel's Messiah. George Preacher Handel is a German-born composer who lived most of his life in England, worked throughout that kingdom, and shared his great work, wrote a number of his pieces in English, some in German, some in Italian, but the Messiah is written such that we might know the full story of who Jesus was. Handel composed all of the music over 24 days, truly a divine push it is a powerful piece of music that makes use in large part in the first movement of the work of the prophet Isaiah and the prophets. For unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. And his name shall be called, right? All of these fantastic pieces of a part of this great oratorio that remind us of the story of who Jesus was. And I mentioned I'm a fan of history, so I just want to dip my finger into this before we talk about the prophet Isaiah simple truth is that the Messiah is not a Christmas musical. You can come here on a future Monday and hear the Santa Clarita Master Chorale and sing along with them, by the way, do many of the sections of the Messiah, principally the first movement, which features all of the Christmas pieces. But the simple truth is that by the time you get to the second of three movements, you've moved on to the passion, suffering death of Jesus and his resurrection. And then by the time you get to the third movement, you're into the redemption of humanity, the judgment of the nations, and the work of Revelation. It's a story about the fullness of the life of Jesus, and yet it takes on this power at Christmas. Probably one of the more familiar pieces from it, the Hallelujah Chorus, is not a piece that is written in the Christmas section. It's a proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus. As I lose my book. But here's the thing that always strikes me about the Messiah. 1743, when he first debuted it after writing it the year before, the reaction was a resounding... Huh. didn't have the power that it seemed to have taken on in later years he first performed it in dublin in 1742 it was at the easter time uh, again all great stories start apparently with drunk irishmen i'm not sure how that works out but the public notice that was posted was we have 700 seats to come and hear handel's new piece the messiah and so to make space for everyone, we would ask that gentlemen not wear their swords and ladies not wear their hoops, so that all might have a seat and have space. So 700 people gathered that day in April, not around Christmas, but around Easter, 
And listen to this powerful work in its entirety. He had a vision at that time that we've captured in our day and age of using what we have and what we are doing and who we are to make a difference in the world. That first performance of the Messiah, the, resource, the money that was raised from ticket sales went to local charities, two related to hunger, and one that was related to getting people out of debtor's prison. In the 18th century, if you couldn't pay your bills, you'd be imprisoned. So one of the things that I'm proud of the history of the Messiah of, and I think speaks to the work of Jesus turning things upside down is because of the first performance of this piece, 142 people had their freedom bought and they got out of debtor's prison. Why say all of that? Well, because that's a piece of music. It's a time that prepares us to look with new eyes at what the, uh, what the prophets want to tell us about who Jesus was. Isaiah has lots to say about children born of virgins and transforming presidents, lying lying down with lambs and changing the world around them. But if we're going to take seriously an invitation to look at an upside-down way that Advent comes to us, I want to look at a different verse altogether. Prophet Isaiah in the 42nd chapter talks about it this way. Here's my servant whom I am uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put in my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voices in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. And in his teachings, the nations, the islands will put their hope word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. How different a world it would be if we could see things turned right side up the way Jesus does, the way God intended in the prophetic word, where justice is not just something that can be beaten into another, that would be the result of having the loudest voice in the room or the strongest gun on the battlefield, justice not as the result of conflict, but of faith, of compassion, of knowing most the heart of God, that that would truly lead us into a place of justice. For all the celebration of the Hallelujah Chorus and the Messiah, the message of Isaiah is one of a world turned upside down where we go from a time of that which is unjust to a time that is just. It paints a vision and a picture of a world that is radically different than the one that we see when we open our windows or our doors and we look outside or we open our phones or watch the evening news. A world not as it is, but what God might do with it in God's good creation. Justice that's not the result of conflict, warring, strength, but of faith. Why? Because the Spirit of God is upon them. Isaiah goes on to talk about the idea that as the nations gather around that throne, they will do so in a spirit of peace. And they will not be forced to worship the one true God. It's a fascinating piece of interfaith dialogue for me that says the world can exist in a faithful way where we are not competing for those we believe in and follow even. We're committed to the idea that God longs for the best for all of us. Micah has a vision for the kingdom of God. 
Oftentimes our vision for Micah comes from the familiar Micah 6.8. You know, O Holy One, O Man, what the Lord requires of you. Walk in justice. Love, mercy, and kindness. Be with God. But earlier in the book of Micah, a vision of sustained peace from chapter 4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and he will settle their disputes for strong nations far and wide. Oh, and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. If God is sustaining our peace, we can weather a time when our world feels upside down. How different a world is pictured in the proclamation and hope of the Old Testament as it reaches forward in anticipation of the one who comes as Emmanuel, God with us. How different the world is from the Old Testament into the new in anticipation of one who comes to a world of violence, sword and warfare, where children are put to death, where families flee countries and head to Egypt to find peace. How different the world is if we live to and long into God's vision and hope for it. Do you want life to be the same 29 days from now? Do you want life to be the same 29 days from now? What do you want for Christmas? Part of my answer to that is a world transformed by our common generosity. I am so proud to serve a church that participates in the miracle offering program that this church does. To share our gifts and resources every Christmas Eve to be transformative in the world around us. And one of the people that we serve is a local institution that has been making a difference in the lives of the unhoused here in the Santa Clarita Valley. I wanted to have you take a minute of your time and watch a little clip about Bridge to Home one of the ways that we can live into the gospel truth and reach our world. There's a lot of misconception out there in our community where people believe that the homeless population in our valley is coming from the San Fernando Valley, when in fact they're from the same zip codes that we reside in. There are many different reasons people become homeless, and there are many different circumstances and needs that bring people to Bridge to Home. Maybe they're low on money, out of food, and are looking for a warm meal. Maybe they're looking for a safe place to sleep for a few nights. Or maybe they've fallen on hard times and have found themselves without a roof over their heads or the means to find their way back to housing. Bridge to Home can help all these people. Every single year for 22 years on April 1st, people who were working to move from homelessness to housing had to go back to the streets. This year that didn't happen. In the past, we were only able to provide an emergency nighttime shelter 
Now we provide safety from the elements around the clock. Over the last year, our Bridge Client Center in Newhall saw 5,541,000 visits. We provided winter shelter at our Drayton Street facility to 152 clients. And most importantly, we were able to help 92 people transition from homelessness to permanent housing. It's a studio apartment and it has a, a bathroom with a shower with running water that gets hot and cold. It's like a dream. Oh my God, high ceiling. I, that's the cherry on top, really. High ceilings. I, can, I, I, can, I can't even jump and touch the ceiling and that's amazing. Church, we are here tirelessly for good, making a difference in the world that surrounds us. Your gifts at Christmas Eve supporting Bridge to Home will be transformative. You heard them reference the idea that they've had some permanence to their shelter. This video is about two years old, and they've continued that practice through COVID and on since. They are in the process of building and development of permanent facility uh, to help meet the needs of those transitioning from homelessness into housing, as you heard in their story. We look forward to your support of Bridge to Home on Christmas Eve. But maybe your heart has moved today for something more immediate. And a reminder comes from me that this Tuesday is a fourth Tuesday, and so we have opportunities to be a part of the exact feeding ministry that you saw depicted in that video, sharing a main course, a side dessert, or some of the accessories therein serves as a way for us to be the hands of Christ in a world that desperately needs to feel His touch. Think about it and pray about it. In that spirit, friends, let's pray together.